You're listening to TIP. Because oftentimes I get asked, like, I don't have a network. Someone just texted me yesterday, a friend of mine, and he was like, okay, like, fine. I, I, I understand networking is important. Like, what do I do? And, I, you know, I think the first step, more than anything, which I was lacking, is you have to be comfortable with reaching out to people. And what I typically say is the, the best way to do that is realizing that regardless of your age or experience, you always have something to add or to help with the, the other person with. More broadly, the point is you have to understand that networking is not a taking activity. It should be fundamentally giving one. And then you just track that and let it compound over time. And you look back in 10 years and I mean, incredible things will happen. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with Alexei Chernobyski to talk about his transition from the corporate real estate world to going out on his own as a real estate investor and advisor. You'll also learn why a Sam Altman blog post on how to be successful deeply impacted him, what it was like immigrating to the United States, the importance of 1% improvements in any area of life, how to network successfully, and what it was like managing thousands of properties during the pandemic. Alexei is a principal at Centrio Capital Partners, and prior to that, he ran Store Capital's $10 billion commercial real estate portfolio consisting of 3,000 single-tenant properties and ran the firm's underwriting efforts. At Store, he sat on the Investment, ESG, and Employee Engagement Committees. He's also a graduate of the University of Arizona with a quadruple major in finance, mathematics, economics, and accounting. He's passionate about education, mentoring others, and is a father to three girls. I really enjoyed this episode hearing Alexi's story, and I loved his take on networking, learning about sale leasebacks, and the compound effect of 1% improvements in any area of one's life. And so, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Alexei Chernobyski. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 show. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is Alexei Trinabeski. Alexei, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Patrick. You did a good job. Thanks a lot for your time. I just wanted to thank you right off the bat for joining us today. I wanted to talk a little bit about... I was looking at your Twitter timeline just as researching for our interview. And you, you made a comment on wanting to do a podcast about deconstructing the beginnings and the struggles of really successful people, which I actually think is a fantastic idea. I love talking to our guests about their beginnings, their struggles of how they got to where they are. So I wanted to do that with you. And can you just talk to us a little bit more about your family immigrating to the United States, just some of the struggles that you faced early on in your life? I guess at a high level, I came to the US when I was 11. Me and my brother, my older brother, and my parents, and it wasn't the easiest path. Essentially, my, my parents had their degrees not make it to the U.S., which is a very Russian thing where they take things, you know, essentially on purpose. What were their degrees in? Uh, engineering. We essentially arrived in Tucson, Arizona without any means of making an income. And of course, when you call them, the, the feedback is kind of like, well, you pay us a million dollars and we'll send you a copy. 
So ultimately it took years for them to get it. And in the meantime, we started actually like, we started a legal club, nonprofit in Tucson, Arizona that actually took off quite a bit. We got like a few grants and my brother and I, I was 11, my brother was 13. So we were able to help quite a bit, you know, and look, and then, then I started watching, you know, when I was 13, my brother probably right around 13 as well. What year would this have been when you guys came here? This was 2001. Yeah, so it was, it was a tough upbringing, but, uh, you know, my, my parents were wonderful. And you just, I guess, what, what's the song? You, you started from the bottom of the year. Tell me more about your parents. They started this club. What did they continue with that? Did they start to do other entrepreneurial things? Like, what was their progression? Like, how did they support you guys? To be candid, it was tough. Uh, thankfully, we moved to Tucson and uh, like a place like New York where a cost of living was pretty cheap. You know, they, they ran the nonprofit that at some point they went back to college and got different like student grants for working part time. But I think they really struggled, you know, and it was very difficult. But, you know, I, I think more than anything, it taught my brother and I like a big lesson in like perseverance and just even, you know, picking up everything. One thing that I'll mention quickly, like we essentially got a letter after eight years of waiting. It essentially said you, you, you have a month to leave or something like that. But it was a very short term, you know, and, and at the end of the day, of course, we're like, well, shoot, like we only have a short time. Of course, I was a little kid, so I wasn't very helpful, probably. We, we waited for this document. I think they applied when I was born, right around there. And then we left right around when I was 11. So it took 10-ish years, give or take. And when we got sort of a notice saying we can leave the country, it was within a few weeks that we had to leave. It was a very frantic like move and my parents did it. I don't know how, to be honest. Like I have three kids now and it's just hard. Like it's hard to pick up and move. And if you sort of think about their life, I think similar to most refugee parents, they sort of live a life in a sense for their kids. And that was, you know, that was very meaningful. I think about it every day. That's awesome. Are they still living? Are they near you? Or what's the situation with your mom and dad? My mom lives in Tucson. My dad passed away like around 12 years ago. You know, just very quickly about like 10 days cancer. Yeah, again, I, I learned a lot from that. And life isn't easy sometimes. No, no, definitely it's not. I wanted to hear a little bit about like when you guys first got here, how was your English? What was it like starting school for you? Talk to me a little bit like as you got into high school, getting into college, like what was that like? I mean, it was rough. Like we didn't know English, none of us. We probably knew a total of, let's say like a hundred words. School was rough, you know, like me and my brother got made fun of all the time. I remember coming to school for Halloween the first time and I was so confused, like what, what are all these people doing? Obviously, you know, we don't, we don't celebrate that in Russia. So, you know, there's just a lot of like cultural aspects that are very different. And again, I think the beauty of something like this is when you have no choice, like I, I literally couldn't speak to my teachers. I couldn't make friends. It was painful. And I'm sure I cried. I don't know, probably pretty common uh, occurrence, you know, and, um, but looking back at it, when you don't have a choice, you, you learn something pretty quickly. You know, so my brother and I picked up a decent amount of English within a year. My parents, of course, took longer. But sometimes the best way to learn something is just not, not to give yourself a choice. 
Was there a Russian community then when you guys moved to Arizona or were you pretty much on your own in terms of community? There was like a refugee center that supported us. You know, for example, we came and there was like an apartment that was furnished already for us and some food in the fridge, you know. And then there there was different levels of support for education, finding jobs, things like that, which was certainly very, very helpful. But you definitely, you feel like you're on your own. There's not like a big community and everyone is pretty stressed out on making things work. And a lot of, even if you could get degrees and you translated them, the equivalents are not the same. For instance, my father-in-law was a, was a dentist back in, you know, US, what's it called, former USSR. And he came here with that degree, but it wasn't recognized. And this is like a very common thing, you know, doctors of all sorts, engineers of all sorts, like, you know, you you essentially have to remake yourself and it's not in your teens and it's not in your 20s many times, it's in your 30s. And that's a difficult path on top of raising children, which is hard, (laughs) which is hard itself. It's incredibly hard and challenging. I've got a couple Russian friends that same situation came to the US. Their parents were professionals in the USSR. They come here and it's like you said, it's a completely brand new start. It's fascinating to me. Like they've all done incredibly, incredibly well. So I don't, I wanted to hear like, does it give you a hunger and a drive that maybe like a regular guy, you know, who's just had a regular easy life doesn't have? Would you say that is the case for you? Is there something that drives you or maybe like a chip on your shoulder? Like I've talked to some guests and they talk about having a chip on their shoulder that has driven them. There's no doubt. I mean, Patrick, like, I think when you grow up living a very simple life and you're exposed to other people and other ideas, I think initially you have like a very small view of the world and your personal possibilities. And then as those possibilities expand and you dream bigger and think bigger, you realize what the different possibilities could be. And personally, again, you know, we came here quite literally with nothing, not even English. I didn't have any relationship. My parents didn't know anyone when I was like trying to look for jobs. And on the one hand, that was a very difficult experience. On the other hand, it it sort of set me off on a different track in terms of understanding the value of relationships and, and how I should have, let's call it, optimized my undergraduate experience, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let's get into that. I want to hear about how you chose to go to the University of Arizona. You ended up with four majors which I don't think I've met anyone (laughs) with four majors. Talk to us about why the the majors that you studied, why you chose them, and just maybe some of the influences that kind of pushed you early on in terms of what you were thinking in terms of a career. Like, What was your mindset at that stage, like what you wanted to pursue? In terms of what I studied, it was finance, accounting, math, and economics. I actually started in the engineering school. And, you know, after sitting through a few weeks of chemistry and physics, I realized I liked it. I just realized that I'm not going to be able to stand out and be sort of, let's call it in the top 10%, which by the way is, I think, a big life lesson in general, meaning I think it's just very important. And I was lucky enough to sort of, some people say, you know, work on your weaknesses, work on your weaknesses. And I think that is one way of thinking about life. Another is work on your weaknesses by focusing on your strengths. 
And the weaknesses come up anytime, every day in different ways, right? But you don't want to be in a setting where you're not above average, let's call it. And I just kind of looked around and I was like, man, like I, I don't understand things as quickly as other people. This is probably not for me. And so I, I had a mentor of mine in high school, actually, that I'm still close to, which again, it, it kind of goes back to crazy stories, right? Because for some reason, I, didn't, I wasn't even in this class, but we connected because I played ping pong. <laughs> and, you know, he had a table in his room and, you know, we hit it off. So at some point, I asked him for advice because his wife was in engineering and he actually graduated from the University of Arizona for, with a marketing degree. So he told me like, look, I... I wouldn't recommend marketing like you're, you know, you like math and quantitative stuff. So why don't you like go work on Wall Street or something? And I was like, what's that? Like, I literally, I didn't know about the stock market. I was completely clueless. By the way, I also didn't know that it was 2007, 2008. So that just like tells you how clueless I was. And so anyway, so my first major was finance. Then I started, I took my first accounting class and I was like, wow, like I, I did really well. It comes pretty naturally. Accounting feels pretty important when it comes to investments. Let me double major in accounting. Then in the summer of 2010, hard to believe that it was 13 years ago, but I got accepted to a summer program at Harvard Business School. And I, I, had, I spent some time with the PhD admissions office there. And as part of that, they said, like, listen, you can certainly apply to one of our PhDs, but it's going to be very difficult for you to be competitive without having a, like a very serious economics and math background. So then I added math and economics. And, you know, so I, essentially the, the story was I, I was in school essentially double full time for every summer, winter, every semester, you know, like um, nonstop. And then close to graduation, I woke up and I was like, hey, um, what's next? And originally the plan was to go the doctor route. I got into Cambridge for like a master's that sort of would fold into a PhD in financial engineering. And then I went to Israel, which is a whole other conversation. But I went to Israel, ended up spending two years there instead of going to Cambridge. And as part of that whole experience, learned a lot more about myself. And one thing I learned is like, I just don't do well with theory. Things can't be theoretical. I need to be very practical. And as part of that, I, I realized I need to go into industry. Was it an academic program that you were doing in Israel or was it something else? It's called Yeshiva. It's essentially a, call it like 12 to 15 hour a day. You can think of it as like sort of college or like religious college, if you will, where let's say like 70% of the time you're delving into the Old Testament, the Talmud. I don't know if you've heard of that, you know, like old scripture in Hebrew and Aramaic. And then about 30% of the time you're spending understanding yourself as a person, like what drives you, how can you work on your character? And, you know, those, men, those things are meant to be very um, complementary to each other. And so that was two years that you were in Israel. Is that, did I hear that right? Two years, yeah. A little bit over two years, yeah. And did you find that useful, like to have that period of time to, like you said, work on your character, work on maybe deeper questions? deeper issues that I think maybe a lot of young people don't think about. Yeah, I, I think it was probably the most profound two years of my life. And I generally don't. It's weird. Like sometimes people will ask me, people that are considering going to this fellowship or, or people that you know, aren't Jewish, they'll ask me like, why, why did you do it? 
Um, and the, the answer that they expect is, you know, I, I really got a lot of religious stuff out of it. And that's true. You know, I certainly learned a lot, you know, in terms of scripture and things like that. But for me, a lot more of it was character based. Like I learned a ton about what type of person I want to be. I found a lot of role models that I guess, at least in my experience, was very hard to find in, in the typical corporate world. And it showed me kind of how I want to live my life and what should I model my life after. And then, you know, I went on an entire like exploratory phase of my life, realizing I, I'm not as introverted as I thought. You know, in college, I sort of forced myself. I didn't really have a choice with all the, you know, double full-time coursework. I was in library almost all day. And I just kind of assumed that I'm just like this introverted person that hates speaking to people. But when I got a chance to breathe in Israel, meet some people, I realized I have like this massive drive to meet people, network, and uh, a lot of people there were phenomenal and they expanded my mind in terms of even thinking about that. Yeah, it brings to mind the, your pinned tweet is a rabbi, I believe, right? Yes. I forget exactly what he says, but can you share a little bit about that? Because I think I remember watching it a while ago when I first kind of found out about you. And I, I know it was really good. Can you share why that is pinned to you? Yeah, it's like a, it's a very short, like two minute video. And I think it's the, one of the most meaningful two minute videos that I've seen. It, essentially, what he talks about is that difficult times are only difficult to the extent that they help you grow. In other words, if you're not going through a struggle, you as a person can grow. And then, you know, he, he uses a lobster um, as sort of like a metaphor to explain this. But, you know, I, I think I, I've seen this to be true all the time. You know, I, for example, you know, at my last job at store, I managed, you know, a $10 billion portfolio through COVID. And I can't tell you how stressful that was. It was like, it was a lot, <laughs> to say the least. You know, you essentially had 2,500 properties all in the, in the lower middle market. And, you know, these are not public companies flush with cash. It was challenging. You know, and we got hundreds of calls for help and people crying and wanting help. And, you know, you sort of had to triage the entire situation. Like I had a whole team to lead and we had sell site analysts and buy site analysts and credit agencies calling us like, what's going on? What are you guys going to do? So it was, uh, it was a lot. But where I'm getting to is that was probably one of the most meaningful career pivots in my life where I would, uh, you know, you got through that and you're like, man, I just learned a lot. But you don't, you don't realize that while you're going through the pain. <laughs> I want to get back to store here shortly, but I want to, I want to kind of circle back to your, your university days. You had four majors. I think you had, what, a 395 grade point average, something like super high. But you, you wrote also on Twitter that you, a class in cold calling or relationships would have been maybe your, more useful than those four majors. Is that something that you really believe? Or, or I'm just kind of like thinking about like looking back on things. Is there anything you would or, have Or done? was I was I tweeting for engagement? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. Or just no, like no, being tongue-in-cheek. You know, I, Patrick, I absolutely do. And I'll tell you, I mean, I have three kids now. And I'm day-to-day, I'm thinking like, should I send them to college? And I think the answer... Uh, look, if, if they want to go to medical school... Uh, or something like that, that very clearly requires a certain path, no problem. But I think 80% of the careers out there, and I would argue perhaps 50% of the high earnings careers out there 
don't require college. I think the best way to describe it, Patrick, is when people ask me, what do you use most out of your education? I surprisingly tell them math, you know, and, and they ask me why. Like, I don't do calculus. I don't do real analysis. Like, those classes were painful, like proving calculus from scratch. Like, that didn't teach me anything as, as far as investing goes, but it taught me how to, you know, hit my head against the wall for three days in the library to figure out a proof and not give up because I know there's an answer, right? And that was probably the most important thing I learned. So now going back to your ultimate question, you know, meaning why is relationship building and cold calling more important? Because I realized when I left, like all the people that had relationships got the fancy jobs and my four majors and 3.95 GPA didn't really matter. At the end of the day, jobs go to people with relationships. And I I would say even further, I think typically people get jobs to get some sort of financial freedom or financial success. And as soon as you, you talk about leaving an organization or starting something on your own, it's all about relationships. I mean, everyone forgets where you went to school, what GPA you had a year out, two years out. And the way to get your first job is not your GPA or where you went to school. It's cold calling people in the area cold emailing. And, and again, Patrick, my point more than anything is, this sounds funny, but in college, I didn't even understand that was a thing. Networking and relationships and cold calling. like Yeah. like what it, I just, I felt like it was like this dirty, like, why would I bother someone with a question that's, that's like taking from them? I don't want to do that. Like, I'll get a good job by locking myself in the library for five years, not stop. And getting the most majors and getting the highest GPA. And that was just like so wrong. <laughs> so looking back on things, like that's not how you would have you would have done things much differently? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think I could have learned everything that was relevant to what I do now in I mean, it sounds scary to say, but probably a few months. I really don't use that much knowledge from from undergrad. I don't know, probably University of Arizona doesn't want to hear this. <laughs> and, and, you know, universities at, at large. But I think I would have focused a lot more on relationship building. I just totally didn't understand how the world in the US functions. I think in Russia, it's, it's quite, it, it's very like, it's very academic based. And, and it was a little late in the game that I realized in the US, like, people sort of care about your academics. But I've seen many cases of people with 2.5 GPAs, one major, Goldman Sachs investment banking. And I'm like, what? Like, how? That's impossible. And the answer is, by the way, sometimes it's like an uncle or whatever. But put that aside. The answer is, sometimes the person was like, hey, let me cold email someone at Goldman. I'm in New York. And they responded. And they got coffee. And, you know, the thousands of other resumes that have way better credentials got ignored just because this guy had a personal relationship with a guy with 2.5 GPA. So is that something that you've really worked on since leaving college is learning how to network, learning how to cold call? Is that something that you've spent a fair amount of time on? Yeah, a ton, a ton. I think I actually have a thread going out on this today because oftentimes I get asked, like, I don't have a network. Someone just texted me yesterday, a friend of mine, and he was like, okay, like, fine, 
I, I, I understand networking is important. Like, what do I do? And, I, you know, I think the first step more than anything, which I was lacking is you have to be comfortable with reaching out to people. And what I typically say is the, the best way to do that is realizing that regardless of your age or experience, you always have something to add or to help with the, the other person with, right? So some of the examples I put in the thread were, you know, for example, you're, you're a college student. I, I help college students all the time, you know, I get placement. And the last thing I'm like, I don't like, I'm talking to the MD of Goldman Sachs. Like, how am I going to find a way to help them, right? And one example is you might be at a club and it's like, you know, it's an awesome club at, let's say, NYU, and you have a really good connection to a bunch of interns. You might sort of be an in for this person to find really good intern candidates. You might have a software idea that this guy has never heard of. You might think of a stock idea that you barely like researched, but you just think is interesting and you'll mention it to him and he'll be like, well, damn, like this little kid clearly doesn't know what he's talking about, but I've never looked into that stock. Let me look into it. More broadly, the point is you have to understand that networking is not a taking activity. It should be fundamentally giving one. And then you just track that and let it compound over time. And you look back in 10 years and I mean, incredible things will happen. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. 
This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. I'm now thinking about your Sam Altman post about the... You said that it was like one of the most important... What was it? An essay that, you, that he wrote? Yeah, yeah. It was just a blog post. I just was thinking about that, about like the 1% kind of in, improving 1%. Like one of the points was that. Can you talk a little bit about why that made such an impact on you? And then also like how you implement it in your own life. Just to set the stage, so humbly said, obviously, I don't know Sam, but from what I can gather, his last venture before OpenAI, let's say, was not a complete failure, but not a success either. And he worked on it for many, many years. And I think it was probably pretty challenging to walk away from it without a big success. Then he's been working at OpenAI for several years. And I think in many ways, he never got fame until, I don't know, he saw like six months ago, give or take. You know, there was a Microsoft deal and a whole chat GPT, obviously, you know. And the beauty of this blog post, I think, is it was written in 2019. So he probably knew what he was sitting on, but no one else did. And it was just very insightful because I think there's 13 different topics that he touches on. And one of them is, you know, to your point, sort of apply compounding to yourself. Many times we think about compound interest. Many people don't even know about it, but it will blow your mind if you really think about it. And one way I apply this to my life is, <laughs> funny enough, it's Twitter. So like ever since I started with zero followers, I, I have a spreadsheet that I update literally every day. And my goal is to get 1% more followers. Now, I think about that on a, as a daily goal and also a cumulative goal to not, to not be like overly obsessed with followers, you know, like, and more obsessed with like quality of the content. And what happens is like, look, when you have 100 followers, getting one more is very easy. It's like a very attainable goal. Now, like, I think around the 8,000 range. And like, for example, yesterday, I didn't get 80 followers. I think I got like 15. However, three weeks ago, one of my posts went viral. And I think I got 1,000 from that post. And so again, like, you, you kind of were like, okay, like, I didn't meet the goal for today, but I'm still over my sort of what the goal was had my post not went viral. So it's like, great, okay. And you just keep going every single day. Day in and day out, consistency is massive. And and if you apply consistency with the 1% rule, I've personally seen it work with, you know, growing the Twitter following. And it's just pretty amazing to look back and think, you know, it just took, let's say, an hour of daily effort, 30 minutes, whatever it is. And then over time, it just compounds and you look back and you're like, damn, like I I built, it's not a big following, but it's certainly something. And it's all based on this rule. I literally have the spreadsheet every day. What were some other points from the Sam Altman blog post that also made a big effect on you? I think the two that I pointed out, one big one was that the only way to get like really wealthy is owning something. And his point more than anything was typically careers are fairly linear, whereas owning something is is not linear. And I don't know, maybe I'm just, I think that was cool because I like math. But I, I think it's it's very, Patrick, it's something that I just, coming from Russia, you're just like, get on the career train, stay on it forever, stay at the same employer forever, and that's success. And 
you know, you just read something like this and you're like, well, wow. Like I, I never thought about that. I also think it's amazing hearing it from someone who was not so successful when he wrote it on paper, at least you could say, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you one more thing rel- related to that is one big, uh, one quote that I really loved is, you know, he talks about how probably going to mess it up, but it was something along the lines of, I don't care how long it takes me to find a new opportunity or a new job, because I know that the goal is once I find that opportunity, the rest of my life career beforehand should essentially become like a footnote. In other words, what I'm about to, the rocket ship that I'm about to jump on is so meaningful. And that's why I'm so patient because I need to find the right thing. And that one thing, and by the way, I think it's very true in his life, right? Like OpenAI became a massive company and everything that he did beforehand is like a footnote on his life compared to this one thing. And hopefully uh, happy to continue. But <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. I'll, I'll definitely put uh, that post in the show notes and so people can read it on their own if they'd like, because it, it, it's very good. And uh, I do want to move on to talking about real estate. So you're in Israel at, at Yeshiva, right? For two years. When did the real estate bug bite you? Like, how did that come about? It actually didn't. You know, like all of my experiences before real estate were investing, I did quantitative investing, like distressed trade claims, not real estate, just a trade claim in a, in a chapter 11 or chapter seven bankruptcy proceeding. Then I did strategy consulting, a little bit of private equity turnaround work. And then I really didn't touch real estate until I, I moved to Phoenix. And in a funny way, so store and really any single tenant investor, or I should say most of them, if you're writing a long-term lease that is, let's say, 15 years, and you only have one tenant in the building, so the majority of your work in terms of investment thesis is around the credit. Because if the tenant leaves and defaults, you have a vacant building on your hands. So because of that, I joined Store as a portfolio manager when I came. But I think what it brought wasn't really the real estate knowledge. Funny enough, it's a REIT, but it very much functions uh, like a private equity type of credit place because so much of the work is credit related. And that was a really good fit. You know, so I, I did a lot of work on the portfolio side, you know, in terms of the, you know, managing, managing the portfolio. So when, when you got hired, when you got hired on at store, what capacity did they bring you in at? Were you an analyst? What were you, what were you up to for them initially? I was, uh, I mean, I guess officially, my first title was portfolio analyst. And I got brought into the portfolio management group, which I think at the time was roughly 4 billion, give or take. And I worked on a lot of, you know, anything that we, that 4 billion that we owned, we needed to understand it and keep track of it. So we already presumably understood it since underwrite. But if you bought something a year ago, something could completely change. And the goal was always to have, a really good handle on the strength of your contract throughout the term of the lease, right? So meaning just because the business was doing really well and underwrite and gave you projections that made sense a year from then that were good, that doesn't mean that they've reached them. And so we would collect quarterly financials from the, the sort of consolidated entity and any properties under it that we owned 
on a quarterly basis, we would process them. Anything concerning, we ultimately brought back to the owner of the business or the private equity sponsor in some cases. And ultimately, of course, if you own the real estate, your only decision is, you know, hold and take on the risk or sell, right? That's really all you can do. But there's quite a bit of analysis that goes into, you know, how is the tenant doing? How does it compare to our expectations before? How does it compare to last quarter? And I guess my larger point, Patrick, was I got, I had a credit bug, you know, like I liked analyzing financials, understanding businesses, and that's what really brought me to store. And then uh, I realized, wow, like real estate is fascinating. Explain, you mentioned single tenant leases. Talk to us a little bit about, explain that, you know, for some of our listeners who don't understand what a single tenant lease is, some of the challenges of those, what you were looking at. And then I guess just more broadly, what exactly was Store focusing on in terms of their portfolio investments? I guess a few definitions first. There's something called a sale leaseback, which is essentially, you know, imagine Patrick, you own, I don't know, five child cares, you know, and you own and operate from those locations, meaning you own the real estate and you also operate out them, out of them, i.e. you own the operating company. At some point, you had to put a mortgage on your properties and it's probably like 60% loan to value. And the question is always, you know, where does the other 40% come from, right? And more importantly, is it the best use of that 40%? So to anyone who is sort of trying to grow their business, most in, in most cases, it is not the best use of their cash to park it in real estate because if you're an operator, you could make much more money operating your business and expanding through acquisition or through organic growth, right? But your but your money is like sort of like stuck in your real estate. You get what I mean? That's where the sale leaseback transaction sort of began. You essentially called such a person. You say, hey. How about we buy your 40% equity out? You pay down the loan, you know, meaning you sell the building to us, you take the proceeds, pay the loan 60%, 40%, you'll keep as cash, you know, minus taxes, obviously. And then you can do whatever you want with the money. In other words, you can take the money, you can invest it into the business, you can buy another business, right? You can, I don't know, invest it into Bitcoin. <laughs> But um, that's how the sale leaseback concept started. You sell it, you, you sell the building, and then you lease it back. In other words, you as a tenant and as the original owner of the building are able to stay in that building. You sign a 15-year lease, right? So it doesn't displace your business. And in the meantime, you're able to capitalize on the 40% equity. So that's what Store did. We specifically you know, did single-tenant sale leasebacks. In other words, it's a, it's kind of, we think of a freestanding building that has one tenant inside and you know there's the operator and again we do the sell lease back lease it back on like a 15 20 year term and within that there's a lot of granularity it's it's a, this is a sell lease back market it's a massive market billions of billions trade every year within that we play there's sort of like the investment grade sell lease back space which you know you can think of doing a sell lease back to McDonald's in and out burger, Starbucks, whatever, you know, like the investment grade type credits. And then there's a mid to low, low to mid market, which is sort of like the, the step below that, which is anything from three pizza shop, mom and pop operation to let's say like a KKR backed 50 million EBITDA 
manufacturing operation. So that's where we played. I think, did I answer everything? Yeah. So you, you grew the portfolio. It sounded like it was about $4 billion when you started there. And when you left, it was around $10 billion. So talk to me about that, that growth. What was that like trying to manage that process? Yeah, you know, it was a lot. I, I can't say I did it by myself, right? I worked for a public read. So, you know, there was a sales team, an investment team, a portfolio team. And at, at some point, I actually essentially took the investment team and the portfolio team and merged them under myself as part of like a reorganization. And, and so the beauty of that was anytime you look at transactions, so we, we've been talking about childcare. So let's say childcare. So a childcare transaction comes in. I'll assign it to one of my vice presidents that cover child cares. So in other words, they don't only have questions based on what the prospective tenant sent us. They might also have questions based on the, I don't know, call it 400 million of child cares that we own already from the portfolio. And that vice president covers that entire exposure, right? So there was sort of this feedback loop. And once you close on something, that childcare would sort of come back to that person to manage for the rest of the lease term. Do you get what I mean? In terms of scale, look, we, uh, I mean, I think the management team did a phenomenal job. Like, you know, they, they, um, I think firstly, the business model is very well set out. Chris Volk started sort of like this idea in many ways, and it, it's just extremely well thought out. There's a massive market for it. Not that many people want to buy. This might be interesting for some of your viewers. Not that many people want to buy low to middle market single tenant buildings. Why is that true? Because they're more complicated. You know, there's more structuring involved. Sometimes I would get balance sheets that don't balance. And the immediate reaction is like, oh my gosh, like, what do you like? What planet do you live on? You don't have balance sheets that balance. And then once you see more of them, more of them, you realize. These people have been operating this business for 20 years and like it's a business and like their controller quit a year ago and they just made a mistake. Like they're not in the business of financials. And you, you ask obviously plenty of questions to sort of make sure that everything is really sound. And there's always sort of an art to how you ask those questions because, you know, if you get on a call with a prospective tenant and say, why doesn't your balance sheet balance? They might not want to sell them sell uh, sell their building to you anymore. So there's a way to ask things, right? But yeah, it's a fascinating space. And because of the, I guess I could say, sophistication that's involved on the origination side, the competition is just much less. We typically acquired in like the eight to nine cap range, while in and outs and McDonald's and all those guys, you know, they were trading in like the fives. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So back to the Sam Altman quote about having a, an equity stake in something. At what point did that kind of feeling develop? You're, you're working for store. You're doing pretty sophisticated deals, growing a portfolio from $4 billion to $10 billion. At what point did you say, I want to get a little bit of a, the piece of the pie for myself? Did that come about at pretty early in, in the, your career at store? Or? Maybe later on. Yeah, I mean, I think I um, I was very blessed to you know I essentially got my, my uh, I think it was got promoted like five times within a four year period, and as you move up the chain, typically in like a public read, they they give you shares that vest over a period of time, and so I I got a, a piece of the pie. Granted, it's you know ten billion AUM company or market cap, however you want to think about it, and so it was a small pie. But it was a meaningful pie to me. Some pie, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so that really helped me build some wealth, thankfully. And I'm very thankful for it and all the opportunities that store gave me. But then ultimately, to your point, I, I realized, and this was pre-Sam Altman, but I realized that, you know, generally speaking, your career opportunities at a, at a big company are, you know, they're, they're sort of, it's, it's interesting. They're, I think they're generally like linear. Then they get exponential and then they be, sort of become linear again because you have senior leadership or whoever, like you have the executive team and are they ever going to quit? If they do, are they going to hire someone externally or promote you? You just don't know these things. You know, so a lot of it is very, it's very um, chance based. And the question is, you know, how many years do you want to wait? And for me, it was just becoming difficult to wait longer and longer. Yeah. So talk to us about those next steps. What it was like to leave? Because we've got listeners and I've talked to several people recently that are at in a position where they're in a great career, but they're ready to take a leap to doing something on their own entrepreneurially. 
and that's a that's a tough transition. Can you talk about that? What that transition has been like for you, and just what what you've got involved with, and maybe just like advice to people on how to handle that big step. I think the the probably the biggest piece of advice I would have is learn as much as you can while you're out of place. Generally speaking, I think it's very easy to assume that you can figure things out. And many times that's true. You know, you can call an attorney or you can call a friend or whatever, right? But while you're at a company, you sort of have a ton of things that you can learn and a lot of people that you can learn from. And I think probably 90% of the time, those chances go to waste, you know, because you're just sort of on this like one track mindset, right? But, but if you know that one day your goal is to start something on your own, I think that'll change your perspective and how, and how you view the world and how you view your job as well. So I think that's one. Two, hopefully I'm not being annoying, but like relationships are big. I think it's, I always encourage people to keep track of all your relationships, uh, starting college, if not earlier, on one place. And at some point, all of them will become super helpful. And, and sometimes a relationship that you spoke to 10 years ago, randomly on the phone, will become your capital source 10 years later. So what does that look like for you? You said you keep track of all your relationships in one place. What, is that, what does that look like for you? I literally have a uh, Google document and I'll just keep track, like first name, last name, firm, city, state, cell. And then, you know, I'll just keep track of notes. So, you know, when I spoke to them, what it was about, when was the last time I spoke to them? And many times, uh, just to give you one example, I think I wrote about this in my thread. I, I also did this with a bunch of people that rejected me. I had so many interviews during undergrad and I've kept in touch with a lot of them. Many times you get a sort of like a rejection email, even if it's from HR, by the way. And many times you just won't respond. I took a very different approach and I said, wow, like, no problem. Thank you. Here's a few things that I learned. Uh, it was a pleasure, blah, blah, blah. And then many years later, I'll reach back out because I randomly remembered some of the lessons that I learned in that interview process, or maybe I wasn't prepared for something, you know, and like it, it was a meaningful lesson. And the hiring manager will be like, what? Like, you said thank you. And you remembered like that I grilled you on, I don't know, the CAPM model. And that was such a meaningful event in your life. Like, yeah, I'll get coffee with you in New York. You know, like, that's cool. Like, you just, you, you don't, people don't do that. And CAPM is what? Capital asset pricing models? Is that? Yeah, I just, I just picked something random, you know, like. You'll get these like crazy questions, uh, in my opinion, many times dumb questions in interviews, but whatever it is, you know, like, or you got grilled on the, the modeling test and you completely failed. And one path is to just, you know, shut down and say, well, shoot, I suck, like onto the next one. Another path is I suck, but like, let me get better and stay in touch with this person because this person helped me realize that I suck. And then you reach back out and you're like, hey. I had like, I'll, I'll tell you, I had a funny experience. At some point in my life, like very, very early on, I didn't know anything about real estate. I got introduced to like one of the senior people at, uh, I think it's like $50 billion fund. And, you know, he brought me in. I was like super nervous. I, 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 I like could barely talk probably. Still very like introverted as a person. And he asked me what a cap rate is. And I totally like, Patrick, I butchered this thing. Like I, I remember looking it up and like, I kind of said it right, I think. And then he, he had a follow-up question and I just totally failed. 
miserably to the point I think like he laughed, but I still stay in touch with him. And it's kind of like a joke now because everyone makes mistakes and you learn. And then, you know, years, years, years later, I ended up running a $10 billion portfolio for a real estate company. Life takes you in different directions. And it's just, it's so valuable to stay in touch with people because you, you just, you don't know how you might be able to help them years down the road. So let's circle back, leaving store. You talked about a little bit what that's been like. What, what are you up to today? And how long ago did that happen when you, when you left them? Was that over a year now? Yeah, I left a little bit over a year ago, about 14 months. Today, um, I'm essentially splitting my time, a third, a third, a third. About a third of my time is consulting across a bunch of different asset classes. I've done a pretty big engagement with one of the largest office platforms in the US. I've done some consulting for single tenant funds. And what type of consulting are you doing when they bring you in? What type of work are they requesting you do? It's really all over the place, right? I mean, some of it is investments related. In other words, like we're looking at this investment. What do you think? Some of it is more, call it like strategy. You know, so for example, like the office suite was thinking about going public and I helped them interact with the, the investment banker out of Singapore because, you know, they were just kind of speaking a language that was not so familiar. And then, you know, like I have an existing contract with a software company. It really varies, you know, but, but it's, it's, again, it's very relationships driven because you, you don't know what people need until you speak to them. And sometimes this is the funny part is sometimes you don't even know how you can help someone yourself. You know, you, you get into something and you say a comment and they're like, oh, I've never thought about that. And you're like, oh, like that seems like a pretty simple idea. But it's a simple idea to me based on my experience at another company. And I'm coming into here a little cold turkey, let's say, on what office is, right? And how it functions. But you learn about it and you learn enough. And then new people bring interesting ideas. So that's kind of like where I spend a third of my time. Then another third is looking for transactions myself. Some of that is single tenant at least. I've been kind of picking up on that in the past two months as cap rates have. I don't want to call stabilized, but got better <laughs> before like things just didn't make any sense. But I've also looked at, you know, I looked at a vacant office building recently, a uh, mixed use building. What's your take on vacant offices? Oh, gosh. It's funny. If you would have asked me this three weeks ago, I would have said, don't touch them. But a few weeks ago, a, a local sponsor in Phoenix went under contract on something and he told me about it. Which is actually the third, third is, uh, you know, help with capital introductions. You know, he asked me for potential some help to fundraise the money. And Patrick, I mean, the deal is ridiculous. I think office is so illiquid at this point that there are some opportunities that, I mean, you can screw up five different ways and still make money. To be candid, like I didn't look much into it, but now I'm starting to. And you mentioned prior to our recording or me pressing record, you've got your own rentals too. So can you talk a little bit about that, what, what that's been like? And if you have a, a strategy further on down the road that you want to continue to expand that portfolio? I have two rentals in Phoenix. I don't know if I have a strategy for rentals specifically. I sort of think about, I, 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 in many ways, I like fell into them. Like we lived in those houses or planned to renovate them and then something didn't work out. And we moved and I just decided not to sell. 
because it's a decent like passive income play. Although sometimes it's not so passive as most real estate investments. So I would just, whenever a broker tells you that something is passive income, you should not believe them. But I think, you know, it, it, I think more than anything, playing in the residential market expanded my mind. It was in the same way that store expanded my mind to the possibilities. I mean, it's crazy to see the company acquire $2 billion of transactions. It's also really mind expanding to buy something on your own. I personally find it very mind expanding. I don't, by the way, I don't even know if that's a phrase, but I'm using it anyway. I look at some local businesses to buy nowadays. And it's a very fascinating exercise. You know, like hypothetically, could I close on a business? Sure. I just don't know what to buy yet. But as things come up on the market, I look at it. I look at different real estate opportunities. And, and to me, it's always a question of, I never knew. My wife always talks to me about this. She's like, you know, why don't you just get a job? Like, why are you like, why are you so hesitant? Just go be an accountant, you <laughs> know, whatever. I could never really explain myself until that Sam Altman quote that I, I literally sent it to her yesterday. I was like, this is perfect. This literally explains what I'm hesitant about. It's, it's like, I don't want any opportunity. Like, I, I really want something that I can be at for many years and it will make the rest of my career seem like a footnote. It's a big question of where should you spend your time and where the return on that time will be the best, you know? I love it. What was the phrase, mind expanding? Well, I forget the phrase you used. Yeah. I totally just, I don't know. I think that's English. Yeah. No, I didn't good. know English when I was 11. So I, I didn't know English when I was 11. And one of my only Bs in college was English. So I can officially say, sometimes I'll say like, is that English? I don't know. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny stuff. I wanted to get into a quick fire round if you're up for it. We've got about... I don't know what that means, but let's go. <laughs> Okay, let's do it. No, it's just a, kind of a rapid fire questions and, and you can uh, just kind of give me your quick thoughts on things here. So I wanted to hear about like any your favorite real estate books, anything that's made a big impression on you. To be honest, it's not real estate books. Personally, I like learning just by doing. I have a hard time reading like long form books, but non-real estate books, I think probably the two that were most impactful for me is there's one called Deep Work by Cal Newport. I just did a Twitter thread on that yesterday. No way. Okay. I, I've, I think I've given probably 50 of those as gifts. And, and then the second one is Never Split the Difference, which is it, it's a negotiations book. Both have definitely changed my life. Never Split the Difference. That, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Chris Voss. Is that right? Uh, Voss. Yes. Voss. Yes, that's yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a good one. That, that actually comes yeah. up. A fair amount, and people mentioning it as a book that uh, to check out. Yeah, it's very good. We mentioned Twitter quite a bit. Who do you feel is putting out great content on real estate Twitter? Oh man, so many people. Or your top two or three follows. I'm afraid to even mention people because who am I? Who am I going to forget? I don't know. Look, I mean, like I really enjoy some of the things that Shripangai puts out. Moses Kagan is very good. Especially like Moses Kagan's, I guess you could say personality, you know, like his tweets just feel like very down to earth. It's not very corporate-y. It's very friendly. And I, you know, I've had some conversations with him too, and like, he's just phenomenal. You know, some other folks that I've connected with that, you know, are just very impressive. I'm trying to remember their anonymous names. 
I think he's like EB something. He changes his name like every other day. <laughs> Did you end up going to that New York event that, um, was it Strip Mall Guy put on? Somehow I got an invitation. I was very touched. And I actually booked a ticket. And then, like always, one of my kids got sick. And then my wife, you know, put out the hammer. It looked like a great event. Yeah, it looked really fun. I mean, I was so excited for it. Hopefully I can come to the next one. I want to hear a little bit about uh, like your number one inspiration. Is that your kids, your, your wife, your parents? Who's your number one inspiration? I think pre-having children, I could probably name a few people. Generally speaking, it's uh, people that, and this is hard to find, but people that are, let's call it like, you know, in the billionaire ranks, but are extremely humble and simple people that, you know, just as a, as a person, I appreciate that a lot. And I think it's, it's very difficult to find. Do you have any entrepreneurial heroes like that? Can you, do you have any names that like come to mind? There's a pretty substantial owner in New York, uh, like the, the Sharon family, Ruby Sharon. I mean, he, he built a massive empire, very humble person. His kids are incredible people, uh, spend a ton of time in the community. It's amazing to see, you know, they live in simple houses, drive simple cars. Like, it's just, it's beautiful to see. And for me, it's very, very inspiring. And, you know, I know like one of the top people at Goldman that uh, also I think he like still drives like a 1990 Toyota or something like that. You know, so the people like that, I just uh, really cling on to. And then I think if you were to ask me now in a weird way, it's my kids, you know, meaning they can't inspire me professionally because, you know, they're like, they're, they're learning their ABCs. But in another way, everything that I do is, you know, is, is really for my wife and my kids. And I, I look at them and they're so unassuming. And they're just like, daddy, like, why do you have to go to work? That's not a bad question. Like, sometimes I need to ask myself that. And it's you know, so kind of a, sometimes it just reminds me of priorities. And, you know, that's, that's something that was definitely difficult while in store or really any company is just uh, balancing time, you know, between a family and work. And one of the big benefits to being on your own is, you know, having that be a lot more flexible. Alexei, this has been fun. I really have enjoyed getting to know you a little better. I really appreciate your time. For our listeners that want to get in touch with you or learn more about you, what's a good way for them to do that? I think you can probably Google my name and not find anyone else. <laughs> you know, I'm probably most active on Twitter now. I'm less active on LinkedIn and hoping to get back on my blog as well. So, you know, you can maybe put in my Linktree um, link and you know people can find it there or you know whatever they, they can find it at. and what's your your twitter handle is what again just my last name yeah it's literally my last name yeah i think again if people will my name like all of these things will pop up absolutely I, and i'll put all this info in the show notes the sam altman the blog post a lot of the other things that we've talked about deep work never split the difference some good stuff that you've mentioned along here will all be in the show notes so yeah alexa thanks so much really appreciate the time Hey, thank you. Patrick, it was a pleasure. I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. 
To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.